Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together on this beautiful day. And um, for those of you who are joining us maybe as guests, my name's Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. And what a great day, and a great way to start a great day together here, uh, singing our praises to God and encouraging each other as we do that. We just sang about walking by faith, and when I think about it, I think about that's what Super Sunday was about. Walking on our faith, putting shoe leather on our faith, and showing in very practical ways the love and mercy of Christ to the community around. And so if, if you weren't part of it, there were about uh, 800 of us that went out serving after having a great joint worship service together. You know, all these different services coming together at one place. So there, you know, the Saturday crowd was with the Sunday morning crowd, was with the late Sunday crowd, your crowd, and it was good to be together. And then it was great to continue our worship through service. And so I had the chance to just kind of scuttle around to about 20, 25 sites. And I think we had maybe 25 to 30 sites, so I didn't get to all of them, but here's what I saw. I saw a lot of smiling faces, young and old. I've got this memory of lots of kids in T-shirts way too big for them and having a great time serving with each other, serving with their parents, and God just doing great things in and through that and continue to do great things as we commit ourselves to saying that's just not a one-time deal, but we want that to be more and more of just the fabric and way of how we live life, extending in humility the love and compassion of Christ in practical ways to those in need. And when you think about it, walking by faith has everything to do with the study that we're going to embark in today that'll take us through most of the summer. I'm talking about the book of James, and we're calling it Faith Works, because that's one of the things James is going to continue to say to us is, when you have genuine faith, that faith works out and you see it. It's not just what we say, it's what we do and how we live out our life. And so I want to invite you to just open up to James's letter on page 854 if you need to use the, the Bible in front of you in the rack. And as you're turning there, let me say a couple things about the book. The first is, most scholars believe that this is the earliest of all the New Testament books. It means the first one written before even the Gospels. And most scholars believe that the James that gave us this letter is none other than the James who's the half-brother of Jesus. And so you just think about that. What do we know about James, the half-brother of Jesus? Well, Mark tells us in chapter 6 that at one point, James and his mother and his siblings went and they found Jesus and their intent was to take him home because they believed he literally was out of his mind, that he'd lost it. And, and so that's the James who early on thinks his brother's a nutcase. Then we read in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul says, when Jesus rose from the dead, one of the people that he presented himself to was James. And we know that James then had a completely different opinion about his brother, that he's not nuts, that he actually is who he said he is and he could do what he said he was going to do die on the cross and rise again for our sins. And he's the one that the book of Acts tells us is the primary leader. So we could call him the pastor of First Church of Jerusalem, right? That's that James that we're reading this letter from. And we see his introductory remarks here in verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, who's he writing this to? Well, he says, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So when we hear that phrase, 12 tribes, um, we understand that that was a reference to God's people in the Old Testament. In fact, the Jews, the Israelites, were made up of the tribes that came from the 12 sons of Israel who used to be called Jacob. That's God's people in the Old Testament. And so we have an idea that he's writing to Jewish Christians. And then he adds one little word to help us understand who these guys are. They're scattered. That's a really important little word because it tells us what's going on in their life. And when we put together that word in the history of the book of Acts, all of a sudden we put two and two together. We remember, yeah, and the reason they're scattered is because when Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 8, there was a great persecution that broke out against Christians in the church. And they went everywhere with the word of God, running literally for their lives. And as they ran, they were telling people about Jesus. It's these people that he's writing to. Now, why did he write the letter? That's always something that you wrestle with. What is the occasion? What is the purpose? Why did James write this letter at that time to these people? He's not writing to one city in one church in Rome or in Corinth or in Ephesus, but he's writing to Christians that are scattered across Asia Minor. We, we know from Acts chapter 11, verse 19, that they've gone as far as Cyprus. They've gone up to Antioch, modern-day Syria. They've definitely done what Jesus said, going to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And why did he write to these people? Well, you get in a letter, and right away, you get a clue of why he wrote. And you get to the end of the letter, and you, you just reinforce why he wrote. The beginning of the letter starts talking about hanging tough and tough times. And the end of the letter talks about, hey, the blessing of persevering in the midst of trials, just like the blessing that came to Job's life. And then he ends the whole letter in verse 19 of chapter 5 by saying, look, it is a great thing for you to rescue somebody who's wandering from the faith, who's ready to chuck it in the midst of hard times. And so you get this idea that from the beginning to the end, James is talking to a scattered people going through tough times to encourage them to persevere in the faith, to have a faith that works out in all of life, even when and especially when times are really hard. Here's my hopes as we take up a study like this. My hope is as we find ourselves going through life and finding that life is oftentimes hard, that we'd be encouraged and find encouragement in God's word to keep on keeping on believing God, even when it's hard. My hope is that we grow to have a fuller understanding of what it means to believe in Jesus. One of the things that James is going to do, he's just not going to let us say, I believe Jesus. He's going to say, talk is cheap, my fear. Talk is cheap, Door Creek. Don't just say it. You got to live it. We'll know what you believe, James says, by how you live not by just what you say. And then as he gets into these very practical issues like temptation, like favoritism, like the tongue, like conflict, like poverty, like wealth, like sickness and suffering and and true and pure religion, my hope is we won't just hear the word, but as James says later in chapter one, we'll do it, we'll live it out. So will you join me in prayer as we commit ourselves in this study to God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
We ask for your blessing on our study and we commit ourselves to hearing your word and to doing it. And so we acknowledge that your word is alive. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It teaches, it instructs, it corrects, it rebukes, it trains us in righteousness so that we're prepared and equipped to do all the good works that you've called us to. So we want our faith to be a faith that's vibrant and alive, a faith that works. We commit ourselves to this study and ask that you'd be honored and glorified and help us, Lord, to do just that. We pray this in Christ's name and for his glory, amen. All right, so imagine with me, if you will, being back in the very first century and hearing this letter read for the first time in your church. It it doesn't look anything like this. It wasn't a big building. You snuck through the back ways of your town, your city, to get to that place. The instructions were clear. Everybody, don't show up at the same time. We don't want to draw attention. So come in, and over a couple of hours, people snuck in to that door. And when you went through, your heart was pounding because you were always mindful of this. Was somebody watching me as I made my way? Is somebody going to break through the doors in authority and, and take us away and arrest us or beat us or, or even worse? You know why you're there. You're there because Christ has transformed your life. You've placed your faith in Jesus and you're there to worship and to grow and encourage your brothers and sisters in the midst of really hard times. And as the service begins, you can't believe what your pastor says. He says, I've got a message from you. We've just received a letter from James, our brother James, back in Jerusalem. And your mind goes racing back to perhaps the, the first days when you believed. Maybe you were there on that day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and preached and 3,000 people came to faith in Christ. And you hear about James and you're going, that was my pastor. I can't believe it. He sent a letter for us all the way here, this scattered band of Christ followers. And you're on the edge of your seat as you hear the opening words, James calls an apostle of God, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. And you go, this is great. It's from James. And then all of a sudden you cannot believe what you hear next when he utters this command and says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you encounter trials of many kinds. You go, wow. I mean, I always consider pure joy when I escape trials of many kinds. And James, did you say whenever? Or did you say if? You did say whenever. Just like Peter says when he says, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening to you when you go through trials. This is the stuff of life, 1 Peter 4.12. But you scratch your head and you go, well, James, with all respect, dude, you're still in Jerusalem. You know, you're still at home, buddy. We've lost it all. We don't have home. All, all that brought meaning and security and joy in our life, that was just ripped away. You're still in Jerusalem. I wonder if you'd be saying it here as we're hiding out. As, as this week, there's a few less here than last week. And we've heard reports. And there's been beatings and imprisonment 
and, and we're literally running for our lives. And the deal is, as we start to contemplate who received this letter, we go, we have very little in common with the people who received this letter. It's kind of like trying to relate to the people of Myanmar or who've just survived the earthquake in China or the people who live in Parkersburg, Iowa who lost everything from that tornado. We, we realize I, I can't relate to that sense of scattered, of losing it in that kind of a way. But here's what I know. All of us can relate to that word trial. I can't tell you how many people after the services this week have come up and said, that's where I'm at. It's a good word for me. Thank you. It's where I'm at. Because in, in a fallen world, we find ourselves hitting up against. Hitting a, that, that's the word face means to strike up against. It smacks us in the face, these trials. And there's all kinds of trials. There's trials in our marriages. Words like infidelity. Words like divorce. Words like estrangement. Words like we're growing cold, we're growing distant. We, we know that kind of trial. We know the trial of a, of a child who's just chucked the faith and said, hey, that, that's for you guys, but it's not for me. We know the trial that comes from tensions on the workplace, an impossible job, uh, people that are working against you that are supposedly on the same team. We know what it's like to be looking for work, wondering where it's going to come from. We've got trials. We've got trials of, of health issues and, and doctors' test results that come back and ultrasounds that say, maybe the baby's not okay. We've got trials of infertility where we're just trying to get pregnant. We've got all kinds of trials. We know about trials. But I think we could say to James right now, we don't know about joy. Tell me about joy. I don't know about that. James, how could you put trials and joy in the same sentence? God, how in the world could you link these two things together? Maybe you heard about what happened with the Chapman family. Stephen Curtis Chapman, Christian artist, a great writer and singer of music and worship and praise. And just a little over a week ago, they had a great celebration. Their oldest daughter was engaged and they had an engagement party. It was graduation weekend and one of their sons was going to graduate from high school. They were having a graduation party in three hours. And so in the midst of all this joy and celebration, something happened that was horrific. Something that, that, that happened out of just an ordinary thing that happens millions of times a day across the city's and the neighborhoods of our country. Teenage boy gets in the car, he backs out, didn't see his five-year-old sister behind the car, and he ran her over. We can only imagine the horror, the pain, the hurt of this family. We can only imagine what this boy is going through, this young man. We can only imagine the double grief of these parents who not only mourn the loss of their daughter, but realize what their son is going to live with the rest of their life. And we go, God, are are you kidding? Are are you serious? Are are you some cruel kind of sadist that you would say to us, we're to consider that joy? Is that what you're saying? 
to the Chapman family, you ought to consider it joy that Maria was run over by your teenage son. And we, we need to be really clear here what God is saying. Really clear. When you go to the text, you realize that what James is calling us to is not a joy in the trial. But when we know and understand what God does through the trial, we can welcome them with joy. Why? Why with joy? Because of what God does through the trial. Not the trial, but what God does through the trial. And what does God do through the trial? Verse 3 answers the question. Here's why we can have joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. What is perseverance? It's the spiritual toughness or tenacity, this endurance, this staying power where we keep on believing and following God even when and especially when we're in the crucible of a trial. He says your faith develops perseverance, but perseverance has a job to do. Do you see it? Verse 4, perseverance must finish its work. Well, what is that work? So that we may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And so there's a progression here that goes from a trial that he says is a test of our faith. What does it mean that it's a test of our faith? Well, it both makes it stronger and it reveals to us the metal of our faith. How is it? What's the nature of our faith? Well, you know in the fires of a trial what kind of metal it is. Is it the real stuff? Is it genuine? Or is it gone and disappears in the heat of a trial? There's a progression. The trial tests our faith. It develops perseverance, and perseverance has a job to do, and it's not an end in itself. The job of perseverance is to develop maturity, completeness, wholeness, sense of satisfaction where we lack nothing. We lack nothing. That maturity here is a spiritual maturity. It's a Christ-likeness that he's talking about. He says when we understand what God's purposes are, where he takes the pain and he works it for gain, then we can have joy as we persevere. Understanding it's through persevering in faith that we grow to be more like Christ. And I don't know about you, but every day and every week I'm reminded that I'm still not like Christ. And whenever I'm reminded about things in me that aren't like Christ, it's always, it, it's stuff that, that I know it's not good. It's not good for me. And it's not good for those around me that I live with, that I love. And so I long for more like Christ in me. But the deal is, I'm not crazy about the path. This week, Bridget and I went on a bike ride and um, it was kind of like the first real bike ride of the season. And you know what? I'll, I'll just confess. I'm a flatlander from Illinois, and we didn't have hills in Illinois. <laughs> and I'm getting older, and we were on some hills, and Bridget was just smoking me. And I'm going, Bridget, hold on, girl. Let me get, you know, I'm, I'm in like one and doing this. Going, you know, I didn't get off and walk, but I was close. And, and here's the deal I realized. I love hills but I only like one side of the hill. <laughs> I like coasting. I really like coasting. I like the, the, the acceleration, the wind in my hair. I like that, like, oh, this is great. I'd love all my bike rides to be downhill. 
And you know what? That's a little bit how I like life. I like life to be coasting. As I've been thinking about trials, I just, just was thinking about my life and my, the decades of my life since I was a teenager. Here's what I realized, that in every decade, there's been at least one really big trial. They were major uphills. And when I look back over the course of my life and I say, where did God grow me most? It was always this way. It was always in the trial. And so I I want that end. I want to be more like Christ. I'm just not crazy about the path. And it's good for us to remember that God wants our character to be like Christ more than he wants us to be comfortable today. We've got to admit, we're really into comfort. And we need to just hear that God's really into growing our character. Because there's a direct connection to our character and our joy. He wants us to have that full joy that comes as we see God growing us into his character in the midst of trial and we see ourselves growing more and more like Christ. And here's what I know. When I'm most like Christ, I'm most happy. And so are others around me, right? And when I'm most not like Christ, that's when I'm unhappy and I hurt the people around me. So we have an understanding here of why we can have joy. But let's be clear. It's not in the trial itself. It's not this this bogus, phony spirituality that when something happens, we shout, praise the Lord, hallelujah, amen, I'm glad I crashed the car. What what is that? that? That's not what James is talking about. It's understanding that as God takes me in and through this trial, he's gonna work his good purposes out in me as I persevere in faith to grow to be more like his son. We remember Jesus endured the cross He despised the shame for the joy, not that was in the path to the cross, but for the joy that was set where? Before him. And what was that joy? The joy of giving his life for us that we might find life in him. The joy of restoring a broken relationship that we could never repair. The the joy of finding joy in him. It was for the joy that was set before him. He He didn't hum hymns and skip to the cross. It was agony. The scriptures say he sweat, as it were, drops of blood as he agonized over the thought of going to the cross and being separated with the Father. It was for the joy set before him. And so our joy comes to us in the midst of trials as we understand what God's going to do through this trial. So here's another way to look at it. We're familiar with what this is. This is a, a bench here to work out you got this job here to work the legs. Not a lot of weight on that. And apparently they didn't think I could do a whole lot with weights and so they only put about 20 pounds on here for me. I think I could get that one up. But when you think about the weights, I want you to think about what weights do to our body because it's similar to what a trial does to our faith and to our character. So we go to the gym and we get under the bar and we start working out. We repeatedly work out. We repeatedly work out. We get stronger. That resistant force is that which we push against and it strengthens us. And we add more weights and we push against it and we do more reps. And, and more and more of this goes, we know what happens. We begin to look like this, all right? Here's what it looks like for Dr. Tom. 
All right, so repeatedly working out under the weight of weights in the gym builds up our body, right? Now, here's the connection. The trial is a weight. Some of our trials are 10-pounders. Some of our trials are 50-pounders. They're killing us. Sometimes we get under the bar and we think it's going to just fall right here on our throat and kill us. We just don't know. But as we persevere in faith, that trial is the resistant force and our faith then grows strong as we stay up under it. And even as the body is built stronger through the weights, the character is stronger through the trials where we grow to be more like Christ. And so when we understand what God does through trials, we actually can welcome them with joy. That's what James is saying here. And so the question is, how do you react to trials? How are you reacting right now to your trial? More importantly, James says, how are you thinking about your trial? Because I've asked you under God to consider, to think about it in this way. How do you think about trials? If we're honest, a lot of us have this syllogism. I'm in a hard time right now. God's punishing me for past sin. That's how we think about trials. And when I, when I hear that, I want to just say to you clearly from the word of God, that's not how God is thinking about it. And that kind of thinking is straight from the pit of hell. To get you to doubt the very character of God, of course you're not going to persevere in the trial if you think God is a punishing God. The punishment for your sins was paid on the cross. He's not punishing you. James says he's polishing you. He's making you more like Christ. So James says, how are you thinking about this trial? How are you feeling about the trial? Is there any measure of joy here? Is your faith holding up under the test? If it's real faith, it's persevering. And we'll know we're persevering because we're growing. And let me just say this. The growth in Christ is not all like this. It's two steps forward and sometimes it's a step back. It's three steps forward and sometimes two steps back. But by God's grace over time, we find ourselves growing more in love with Christ and more like him. So if the trial can bring us to Christ's likeness and the way to get there is through perseverance, then the question at hand is, how do we welcome this trial with joy? How do we persevere? Because if I quit under the resistant force of this trial, I'm not going to get there. My spiritual body's not going to be built up. So the question is, how do I persevere? And James anticipates it and he says, the way you persevere, the way that you can welcome trials with joy is as you ask God for what you don't have right now, his wisdom. That's verses five through eight. And when you have God's wisdom, you have his perspective and you've got his truth that you now apply to the very practical situation of your trial. So look at verse five through eight. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. 
He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. And so we need perseverance. And we're saying, James, how do I get it? And he says, the way you get it, the way you're going to stay and endure in this trial is you're going to have God's perspective because right now you don't have God's perspective. You're looking at this trial and you're going, this stinks. How can anything good happen out of it? But you need to see it from God's perspective. You need wisdom so you see it right. You need wisdom so you live it right. And that's what wisdom is. Wisdom in the Bible is never knowledge alone. It's the truth of God's word applied to the situations of life. And here, the wisdom is how to continue on in faith in the midst of hard, hard times. What are the requirements for this this necessary ingredient of wisdom? Who does God give it to? He gives it to those who believe. They need to ask believing. Verse 6 When he asks, he must believe and not doubt. What are we believing when we ask? We're believing that God hears me. We're believing that God can give me that wisdom. We're believing that God could do it for good. We're believing that God could grow me. We're believing that the God who allowed this trial to come in my life can can hold me together and rescue me in and through this trial. We're believing it, that he can help us to persevere through it. And what we're not doing is we're not doubting. Doubt is contrary to faith. It's double-mindedness, he says. Literally, it's two-souled. It's the word for the heart in Greek. It's not a two-faced person. We know what that is, a hypocrite. He says you can't be a two-hearted person. A two-hearted person is a person with split loyalties. You got your foot in one camp, your heart in one camp, God's camp, and then you got your, your heart in another camp. It's your camp, it's the world's camp, it's something other than God's. He said if you are a person who's asking God for wisdom in the midst of your trial, the perspective and the knowledge that you need to apply to that situation, but you're doubting, then here's what you can expect. That your prayers are powerless. That man, verse 7, should not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's not going to answer your prayer if you don't believe that he can. Not only that, he says... That man is unstable in all his ways. He's like the wave blown and tossed on the seas by the wind. This wisdom comes from God. Did you see it? In verse 5, he's the giver. He's the generous giver. He's the giver who doesn't find fault. And when I come to him and when you come to him, he doesn't say, my fear, don't you get it, man? How long have you been walking with me? How many times have you read your Bible and you're still asking me for wisdom? Come on, buddy. He never does that without finding fault. He says, I'm so glad you asked. And you know what? I've got an infinite supply and I'm here all day and I know exactly what you need and just keep asking, keep asking. Is that the God you know? A God who generously supplies you with what you need that you might find joy today, even in trials. So how do I know I have it? How do you know you have wisdom for trials? Well, it's real easy if you just follow the logic of the text. I know I've got wisdom when I find myself persevering in faith. And I know I have wisdom as I find there 
being accompanied with this trial, a, a, an increased amount of joy. It, it's supernatural. It's not what I would have expected. It's not anything I've mustered up. But I'm finding joy as God is growing me and sustaining me through this trial. So I think what James is giving us is huge here as we consider how to pray for ourselves and for others in trial. How do you typically pray for yourself in trial? I know the kind of default for me is, God, get me out of here. Like, let's get this over. I I hear this so often as a pastor. I know God's trying to teach me something, and I wish he'd just tell me what, because I really want to learn, and I want to get on with this. How do you pray? James has just given us huge information on how to pray in the midst of trials and what to pray for. You know, sometimes it's okay, and it's the right thing to pray. God, get me out of here. But we understand there's something else going on here. There's something bigger here in the plan of God, and my prayers need to embrace that. My prayers need to help a person stay under the weight of that trial that they might grow to be more like Christ so I know better how to pray for myself and others. And I think this teaching here calls us more and more to be a people of prayer. Basically what James says, you want to grow in Christ? You want to become more like him? Well, here's what you need. I don't know if you're going to like it, but you need trials. Oh, great. I was kind of hoping for sunny skies right now. You're saying more thunderstorms, tornadoes? Not really into that, God. Well, if you want to grow, that's what you need. And by the way, if you want to grow, you got to pray. You got to be a woman, a man, a student of prayer. And I think of all the things we spend time on this week, all the things, how little of our lives are spent in prayer. And one of our values is persistent prayer, devoting ourselves to pray continually. Devote yourselves to prayer, Colossians 4, 2. Keep on praying. Keep on acknowledging that we need Christ in all of life. Keep on pursuing the one who loves you, who loves me. Well, he ends up with these three verses, 9 through 11, that at first blush kind of reminds us of how James is a little bit like Proverbs. It's got all these little wise sayings, and they seem to be skipping around a lot of different themes, and we go, James, where are you going here? Is this a new thought, or is this continuing on? And I think what we have here is a continuation of the thought, and he's illustrating what wisdom looks like and what it does in the midst of a trial. So look at verses 9 through 11. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. But the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. So there's two people, right? There's a poor Christian And there's a rich one. And he says, when you have wisdom, wisdom helps you see yourself for who you are. Not not letting the circumstances around you define who you are. And so you may think that you're nothing because you have nothing. But God says, let me give you my wisdom, my perspective on who you are. You're rich. Spiritually, you are rich. And so you ought to boast in your spiritual exalted position that you're a joint heir with Christ. And man, if you could see what I can see, what awaits you, your eternal inheritance, man, it would just blow your socks off. You're rich. And then he says to the, to the rich man, 
He says, I I don't want your circumstances to define who you are. I want the wisdom of God to help you understand how to value the things of this world. And by the way, the things of this world are temporary. They're gone like that. Like the flower that fades away in a day when the hot Shiraka winds blow across the desert. It's like the life of a mayfly. It's short. And you need to know that. So you want to grow? You need a trial. And don't be surprised if they come. You want to persevere in the trial? You got to pray. You got to have others praying for you. And as you find yourself persevering in faith, be surprised by joy in a place we've often never found it. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. And again, I will say rejoice. So is there anybody here this morning who longs to grow up? Anybody longing for wholeness? Anybody here longing for satisfaction where you say, I got everything I need. I am content. I am satisfied. Anybody here looking for joy in life, let alone joy in a hard time in life? Anybody here want to see the bigger picture of what's going on in your life and get a sense of how God could be at work here? Anybody wanting a roadmap on how to get through this minefield? If you answered yes to any of those questions, well, I'm here to tell you that help is found in a relationship with God, a God who can transform your life, a God who can satisfy your deepest longings, a God who can bring wholeness to your life. And, and I don't care how much brokenness there's been in your past, wholeness and healing and peace he can do that. And that relationship with God, the Bible says, comes through faith in his son, the one who came to make things right between us and God for all the stuff that we've done with eyes wide open or we didn't even realize we were doing it that separate us from God, that's kept us from joy, that's kept us from wholeness and from peace and from satisfaction. It's through faith in Christ that we can have that relationship and find joy even in the hardest thing. And so if that's what you're looking for, what I'm going to do in just a moment here is pray. And I'm going to invite you to pray with me if this prayer kind of registers with the desires of your heart right now. So let me tell you how I'm going to pray in just a few minutes and then you can decide if it's a prayer that you want to pray. It goes like this. Dear God, I need you right now. Forgive me for ignoring you, for living my life without you, and please help me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, for loving me enough to suffer the worst trial that I might experience the greatest joy. I love you, and help me to live for you, even in trials. Amen. Now, if that prayer registers with your heart, then in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to silently pray with me, okay? Will you pray? Lord, in this room, there are many 
who have no joy, many who have much sorrow. And the truth is, we may be right where we've always been, but our lives seem like the scattered wreckage of a tornado or hurricane or earthquake. And we would ask that you would grace their lives with your presence. Would you grant them wisdom to see your plan and purposes through the pain? Would you, in your grace, grant them joy in the journey? And for those who realize that they don't know you and need a relationship with you, I pray that you grant them faith and hear them even as they join me in praying. Dear God, I need you right now. Forgive me for ignoring you, for living my life without you. Please help me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, for loving me enough to suffer the worst trial that I might know the greatest joy. I love you. Help me to live for you, even in trials. Amen.